the good news. A bunch of malicious incompetents have been fired. The bad news, another bunch of malicious incompetents have been hired in their place. Tonight on Tisky Sour, we'll talk you through everything you need to know about Boris Johnson's reshuffle. To do so, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? Are you on the edge of your seat today? I'm still reeling from whatever it was Nicki Minaj was up to last night, which I'm really glad we're speaking about because I need to figure out what the hell is going on in tw- like 2021 has taken it too far. Um, but yeah, I guess also the cabinet reshuffle. <laughs> no, I agree. You know, if, if you're looking at politics as entertainment, the Nicki Minaj story is, is better than the reshuffle. Uh, we will talk about that at the end of the show. Um, we will also be talking as well as that Nicki Minaj story about how Boris Johnson's winter COVID plan is ignoring the science. Bit of a deja vu at the moment. I'm feeling a little bit worried. If you follow the goings on at Westminster like some kind of soap opera, reshuffles are like season finales. They're a chance for journalists to pontificate on who's up and who's down. Sometimes at least, they'll also have real consequences for the people whose lives are affected by the departments that cabinet ministers manage. On that latter front, today will provide less excitement than relief. Principally, teachers, parents and students will be delighted that this man, Gavin Williamson, has finally been sacked. He'll be moving to the back benches. We could go over all of Williamson's failings right now. It's a very long list but I'm actually going to outsource part of that job to Piers Morgan, who said this to Williamson's face in January. If you go over your charge sheet, your record as leading our education system, repeatedly shamed over school meals by a footballer, exam result fiasco, the school reopening catastrophe, where you basically sent millions of kids back to school for one day to all infect each other and then go back to their homes so they could infect their elderly relatives, which may now be why we have this horrifying daily death number. Uh, we had a poll at ITV uh, two weeks ago. We asked England's teachers whether you should resign. 92% of them said you should go. And it does beg the question, given this series of abject failures that you've provide, presided over in the last 10 months, why are you still education secretary? Why haven't you done the right thing and resigned and let somebody more competent take over and do a proper job? Because you have failed our kids. That was a very successful <laughs> destruction of Gavin Williamson's record. Unfortunately, he held on to his job for nine months after that interview, which meant nine months where schools were provided with no extra ventilation, where millions were off in schools um, in bubbles after other mitigation measures were ignored, and where vaccines for teenagers were only approved two weeks after schools reopened. I do wonder if there had been a different person in that post, whether we would have had the go-ahead for vaccines for teenagers just that little bit earlier. Williamson will be replaced by Nadim Zahawi. He's been promoted from vaccines minister. The next cabinet minister to get the chop was Robert Jenrick. Robert Jenrick was in charge of housing. He was a better media performer than Williamson, so there are less howlers for us to mine on this occasion. He did, however, oversee some real failings within his department. Principal among those is the continued failure to resolve the scandal of leaseholders facing bankruptcy as they continue to occupy buildings covered in flammable cladding. Jenrick was also found to have acted unlawfully when he went over the head of the government's own planning commission to approve a billion pound development by Richard Desmond, a Tory donor. Jenrick will be replaced by Michael Gove. Gove is being moved from his current job as Cabinet Office Minister, where he's been overseeing parts of pandemic planning and also food supplies after Brexit. Let's go to the biggest demotion of the day. So Dominic Raab was not fired. He's still in the cabinet, but he has been moved from the Foreign Office to the Justice Department. Raab had been heavily briefed against by civil servants in the Foreign Office. They saw him as lazy and disinterested in the role. That impression wasn't helped by Raab deciding to continue a holiday at a luxury resort in Crete while Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. Facing allegations he had been paddleboarding while Kabul fell, Raab suggested that wasn't possible as the sea was closed. Dominic Raab has been replaced by Liz Truss. Uh, 
Truss has been trade secretary for the past two years. Most recently, she oversaw the removal of any reference to climate targets in a trade deal with Australia. Yet she is still probably most famous for this speech she gave to Tory conference in 2014. We import two thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace. <laughs> uh, it's good to, good to know someone as forthright as that will be representing our country abroad. Liz Truss's promotion to Foreign Secretary makes her the biggest winner of this reshuffle. Second place probably goes to Nadine Doris. She has been appointed as Minister for Culture, or more realistically, Minister for Culture Wars. This was her in 2017. Left-wing snowflakes are killing comedy, tearing down historic statues, removing books from universities, dumbing down panto, removing Christ from Christmas and suppressing free speech. Sadly, it must be true. History does repeat itself. It will be music next. Doris will be in charge of negotiations with the BBC, and that's another issue on which she has very forthright opinions. In 2020, she tweeted... I've deleted a tweet I posted this morning because I realised people would use it to pile in on the person I was tweeting about. I was trying to make a point that the BBC favour strident, very left-wing, often hypocritical and frequently patronising views that turn people away. This is the person who is going to be in charge of culture in this country, of the cultural industries. Dahlia, I want to go to you on this reshuffle. Obviously, you know, some of these sackings are a relief, particularly Gavin Williamson. I think teachers across the country will be rejoicing. The promotions, I mean, they're the flip side of reshuffles, isn't it? As you, you fire a load of incompetent people and you hire a load of equally malicious people in this case. Yeah. And I mean, there's really not much to sort of choose from, from the modern Conservative Party. But, but what I notice here is that, and this has kind of been Bo Boris's modus operandi, which is sort of taking figures that had previously been sort of at the margins that had been kind of ridiculed even within the party and, you know, promoting them into top jobs, making them into credible names, giving them unmatched boosts to their political careers. You know, Preeti Patel, Matt Hancock is an example of that. Preeti Patel is another example. You know, we have to remember she resigned in disgrace when she was um, having unauthorized meetings with Israeli officials as the International Development Secretary. And now you have Nadine Doris, who, um, you know, has all, always sort of been seen as the sort of a little bit loopy, even within the Tory party. The first time I ever heard of her was in 2011 when she uh, tried to strip abortion providers uh, of their role as counsellors to women who are getting abortions. So she essentially came out swinging straight from the bat, trying to kind of pull this country to the right on an issue that, you know, you would have thought is quite settled, um, when, you know, abortion, which is a woman's right to choose. That's not sort of something that's been that's dragged into the culture wars, at least not in England, Scotland and Wales. That plus the comments that we're seeing here of, of stoking up this kind of hatred of a so-called left-wing media that isn't left-wing at all, uh, you know, whining about cancel culture alongside her sort of brief stint on I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. It makes it really clear that she is quite ideologically committed to a sort of Trumpian style to kind of importing the the US style culture wars as the center of politics model, which is sort of already underway, but she is particularly ideologically committed to it. So it's not surprising that Boris would pick this particular fighter at this particular time. He's, he's sort of outsourcing the work of stoking up the culture wars to Nadine Doris's culture secretary. And it's happening now because the government always returns to these kind of culture war techniques when the state needs to assert itself, when the state needs to promote itself as strong and cohesive when it is anything but, and especially when the government is failing to act in more meaningful areas. And what is a better example of that than the pandemic where, you know, that kind of Tory small government ideology has caused immense carnage and this idea that, you know, the government's total lack of presence when people really, really needed the government to step in and help protect the population and particularly protect workers 
um, during a global pandemic. So the total absence of a competent government at this time means that it's not surprising that they're kind of resorting to these cheap techniques of making themselves seem strong and cohesive in order to project themselves as a strong state, because in the things that actually matter to people's lives, they are not only ideologically sort of strapped in this in this arena, but are also deeply, deeply incompetent. That promotion from Nadine Doris is, is definitely to keep the flag flying for the culture wars in the cabinet. The switch in education, I don't think Nadim Zahawi is sort of as committed to making the culture wars central to his brief. I suppose maybe that was slightly harder as the vaccine minister, and we'll wait and see. But I know that Gavin Williamson, while he was completely failing to do anything that was required to keep kids in education throughout the pandemic. He was still finding the time to sort of rail against cancel culture on campus. Like that should have been about a hundred in his list of priorities, but it was the thing he kept coming back to, the thing he kept writing um, comment pieces about. And I still think that actually the, the thing I find most outrageous about this particular reshuffle is that it took this long to get rid of Gavin Williamson. Because we have talked about it on, on the show so many times before. That you know a, a big part of the problems with this government's pandemic response has been sort of incompetence and, and slowness. And, and, and some of it's even been very ideological. But nowhere has that been more the case than in education. And it seems to me that everyone in government has recognised for at least 18 months that Gavin Williamson wasn't up to the job, that if you wanted to get laptops to kids when there were lockdowns, if you wanted to get ventilation in schools so that you wouldn't constantly have hundreds of kids self-isolating at home and, and kids getting COVID and teachers getting COVID, then you could not possibly do that with him in the job. Yet they kept him there for the entire pandemic. I mean, we haven't left the pandemic, but they kept him there for, for 18 months. How, how many days were missed of education? How many kids got infected with COVID-19? How many teachers felt deeply uncomfortable going into work because no mitigatory measures had been put in place because Boris Johnson couldn't get round to sacking Gavin Williamson and hiring someone who was remotely up to the job? Now, obviously, we'll wait to see to see if Nadim Zahawi is, is, is that person. As I say, his briefs have been quite different to this up to now. But the fact he, he stayed there for so long, one of the most important jobs throughout this pandemic, one of the most important jobs in the most important times since the Second World War, to use a, a complete cliche, it, it just, it beggars belief. The thing that has defined this government in this pandemic, whether it's about holding, you know, cabinet ministers accountable or whether it's, you know, restrictions. It's just been a government of too little, too late. And this is a time when you really can't afford, you really can't afford to do that. And especially, as you said, the, the leadership that we have seen when it comes to education has been from the unions, you know, where whereby trade unions are basically the only thing that stood in the way between students and teachers going back to really, really unsafe conditions and actually the government having to do that U-turn um, so so kind of like at such a quick speed. It's been, you know, the unions and sort of Marcus Rashford. And that is just really quite embarrassing. But I think also one thing that the idea that that these ministers aren't really being sacked for things that they should have been sacked for. I mean, what was a better example of that than Matt Hancock? Matt Hancock, who was a health minister during a pandemic that went horrifically wrong, ended up getting sacked because he snogged a co-worker, which who cares? Like, so the I so really it just goes to show that this government is much more concerned with optics, it's much more concerned with how it can play the media than actually protecting the population at this really, really difficult time. Let's go on to our next story. On Tuesday, Boris Johnson presented the country with his COVID winter plan, and it's fair to say it was pretty thin on measures to control the virus's spread. Other than vaccines, no new measures were announced to control COVID over the winter, with tried and tested measures to limit outbreaks all but shunted into plan B. We will keep further measures in reserve. Plan B. We do not see the need now to proceed, for instance, with mandatory certification, uh, but we'll continue to work with the many businesses that are getting ready uh, such a scheme. In, 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 indeed, over 200 events have already used uh, COVID certification voluntarily. And it's, it's just not sensible to rule out completely this kind of option now, when we must face the fact 
that it might still make the difference between keeping businesses open at full capacity or not. We will also keep open the option of mandating face coverings as they, as they have elsewhere or advising people again to work from home, uh, reflecting the fact that when you've got a large proportion of the country, as we have now, with immunity, then smaller changes can make a bigger difference and give us the confidence that we don't need to go back to the lockdowns of the past. Boris Johnson there saying that simple measures such as vaccine certification, masking and working from home will all be avoided unless things get significantly worse than they already are. Of course, that ignores the fact that we already have around 1,000 people a week dying of COVID and that our hospitals are already under intense strain. Perhaps more importantly, it ignores the fact that when it comes to disease control, earlier actions beat later ones. That was made clear by the scientist standing next to Boris Johnson in that press conference. This was Patrick Vallance on the importance of taking action before it's too late. The principles which have been really clear, I think, right the way across the world, are when you make a move, you have to go earlier than you think you want to, you have to go harder than you think you want to, and you need to make sure you've got the right geographical coverage. So if this goes in the wrong direction and cases go up, followed by hospitalizations, it's important that the measures are put in place early enough and they're significant enough. One might ask whether Patrick Valance there was speaking to the press and public or to the Prime Minister standing next to him. Early action is better than later action. Boris Johnson saying, oh, we're only going to take action if things get really bad. Later in the conference, Valance was again in contrast to Boris Johnson by being pretty clear that we can't just rely on vaccines to get us through the winter. If you think about the degree of immunity we've got and the levels of behavioural restriction that people have imposed upon themselves, so people aren't meeting as many people, we know contact patterns are still quite a long way down compared to where they were, but they are changing quite fast. The faster they change, the more pressure this is going to come under, and that may well lead to a significant increase. If you look at, go just across the channel, countries where you've got similar levels of immunity, and some higher degrees of restriction, what you can see is that the cases are going down. So you can see we're sort of at that pivot point where things are flattish at the moment. If they go up quickly, then as I said, you've got to go early in terms of getting on top of it. You can't wait till it's late because you have to do more. So that's sort of where we are on that. So Patrick Valance, he's standing next to Boris Johnson to basically explain the strategy, but everything he said there seemed to be a not particularly subtle dig at the plan as it currently stands. He says, we are at a pivot point. We're already at a pivot point. That doesn't mean let's wait to see how cases go. He's saying now is a moment that matters. We can't wait till it gets worse. He's also saying, look, look across the channel, look in, look in Europe, look on the continent. There we are seeing, even with you know, similar vaccination rates to what we've got here, just simple measures mean that their cases are falling instead of here where they are rising. I think now we can go to a clip by Chris Whitty. This is on vaccine passports. They've been abandoned for the time being by our Tory government. From the science point of view, though, I think uh, nobody would doubt that it's, you're safer off if you go to any indoor venue where everyone around you is vaccinated. It reduces the probability they will get uh, COVID at all. It reduces the probability if they do have COVID, they will pass it on. And if everybody in the, in the environment is vaccinated, the chance of a mass spreading event is very substantially reduced because everybody's got it. So things that are to encourage everybody to get vaccinated, particularly if they're going to large uh, mass events indoors, uh, you know, the, the evidence that that is going to be a good idea uh, is, is rock solid. Uh, how that's done is very much a matter for ministers. Chris Whitty there making it clear he believes vaccine passports would be a very helpful intervention. Boris Johnson has other ideas. In terms of warnings from scientists going ignored, there was also a significant release from SAGE on Tuesday. They are, of course, the group of scientists who advise the government. These are the latest models from SPY-M. That's the SAGE subgroup on modelling. 
their projections for daily hospitalizations up to November, given different R rates. On this chart, the trajectory modeled in green represents an R of 1.1. In that scenario, daily hospitalizations are projected to peak below 2,000, but quite close to 2,000. However, if R goes up to 1.5 and stays there, we could see 7,000 daily hospitalizations. SPY-M have put those two numbers in there because they think that's the likely range of plausible levels for the R number. Although actually a lot of them have gone on and said, look, it's, it's, it's more likely to be that green line than that blue line because if we're seeing that many hospitalizations, people are probably less likely to go hang out in bars um, than they would be otherwise. It's always worth saying when looking at these models that there is a great degree of uncertainty. Even the scientists who make them say they aren't predictions. There were many interesting pieces in that SAGE document, that SPY-M document, that we can sort of assess with a greater degree of certainty, though. Again, going against what the government are currently doing. In the SPY-M document, they say, while the relationship between cases and hospitalizations has changed due to vaccination, increasing cases remain the earliest warning sign that hospital admissions are likely to rise. It also remains the case that the earlier the interventions are brought into curb growth, the lower prevalence is kept, reducing the direct COVID-19 burden and reducing the risk of needing more stringent measures to quickly reduce transition. They go on. There is a clear consensus that continued high levels of homeworking has played a very important role in preventing sustained epidemic growth in recent months. It is highly likely that a significant decrease in homeworking in the next few months would result in a rapid increase in hospital admissions. So what you have there is SPY-M, that's the modelling group who are officially tasked with advising the government saying, early action is better, please take the early simple action so that we won't need a lockdown later in the year. The thing that means we can avoid drastic action later is taking simple action now. We, instead, the government have said, oh no, actually the simple actions will only take if it gets really bad. That's the opposite of what you're being advised. The reason I picked out that home working part is because that was a specific policy proposal, I think, really inspire. I'm saying, look, it's going to be much easier. Winter is going to be much easier if people work at home. Again, Boris Johnson saying, get back into your offices. Maybe if things get really, really bad, I'll tell you to work from home again. But we're going to wait until the A&Es are full, I suppose. Why not take the action sooner rather than later? Um, we have been speaking for over a year now about how this government seemed incapable of recognising the fact that's recognisable to everyone else in the world, it seems, that early simple actions are better than letting things get really, really bad. So one, a bunch of people die who didn't need to die. And also you end up having to take much more extreme actions such as lockdowns. Why haven't we learned anything? Well, as I sort of said before, it's a mixture of incompetence and ideological opposition to the kinds of measures that would keep people safe. This includes things like encouraging people to work from home, offering workers support if they need to self-isolate. Obviously, so much of what you've mentioned, which is that a lot of the measures that are in plan B are things that should be kicking in right now. But also, They've not given any indication of what the metric is for even triggering plan B. They haven't said, okay, this is the benchmark of cases or, you know, if there's a new variant, there's no clarity about the threshold, even, even though it's not, doesn't make any sense to not bring them in right now. So the suggestion that the metric should be hospital admissions. Firstly, we, we know that being admitted to hospital is not the only risk, the only like adverse risk that comes from contracting COVID. But also, haven't our healthcare staff been through enough? Why do we have to continually push them to the brink when they've already gone through an incredibly traumatizing and difficult and exhausting year? And yet we're saying, well, we're going to just sort of take you for granted and push you right to your limit once again. Um, and then, you know, maybe we'll start to do things by which time we, as we've learned, uh, it will be far too late. And this just seems part part and parcel, you know, another round of the kind of unclear messaging, the haphazard timing, the poor planning that has really characterized this government's approach um, to the pandemic, which is why we've not only had an unnecessarily high death toll, we've had really considerable fallouts from having to have so many long draconian lockdowns. And we've also had a really massive economy hit. So it's not even like we've made a trade-off between public health and the economy, even though that's not a trade-off we should ever really make.
another reason why the government have sort of put themselves in this position is because of the whole Freedom Day thing. You know, this is why so many of us were really, really opposed to the Declaration of Freedom Day is because it's going to make it much harder to then re-implement these measures, things like a mask mandate, which should have never stopped. It's going to be much harder once you've already announced Freedom Day to then go back and say to people, well, actually, that was completely delusional and deranged, and we're actually going to have to go back to the situation that we were in um, beforehand. What would have been so much better would have been if we had instead of confusing people with these very misleading messages, even though it might play well in the press for a few days, if we'd have actually just been really honest with people, managed their expectations, said, look, this virus is not something that we're going to defeat. It's not something that we're just going to conquer. It's something that we're going to have to learn to live with for quite a long time. And learning to live with it doesn't mean being in constant lockdowns. It means learning to live with it. The key word being live, learning to find a way how we can sort of reorient our society and reorient our society essentially around the kinds of things that keep us safe. And that includes things like we should expect to have to wear masks on public transport for a few years to come. We should expect flexibility around working from home to avoid those, you know, com- rush hour commutes and work and unventilated workplaces. That's something that will probably be part of our reality for quite a long time. Things like, you know, having a, a, a system in place so that when workers need to self-isolate, they don't feel disincentivized to do so because they're worried in case they're going to lose income. We need a, a strategy that works for precarious and sh- and and you know, pay per hour workers, as well as sort of salaried workers. So these kinds of longer term, lower effort, sustainable solutions are really the things we should be prioritizing. But as you said, it seems like the government has learned nothing, but they also aren't interested in learning anything different because the reality of the situation is goes against their fundamental principles, which is, you know, the government should have nothing to do with people's lives. The government is only there to punish. It's only there to incarcerate. It's only there to kind of criminalize people, but it's not there to, you know, provide a functioning healthcare system or public health mitigation system in the middle of a pandemic. That's not an interesting or, you know, useful thing in the government's eyes. So I think, yeah, I think that the government is reaping what it sowed when it announced Freedom Day. But it also, you know, especially as we know that that the efficacy of the jabs wanes after six months, especially against the Delta variant, we're looking at a, another really, really tough winter that didn't need to be so tough. There's only one bit of what you said that I'm going to push back against, actually, and it's given Freedom Day, which, I mean, we both agree they shouldn't have got rid of masks, et cetera, et cetera. Your suggestion is that it would be politically difficult for them to bring back a mask mandate, if, if, I, if I'm understanding you correctly. One of the things I find so frustrating about this all being shunted into Plan B is that everything that's been shunted into Plan B, I don't think the public would mind at all, Right. Vaccine certification, I think, would actually be fairly popular. Masks on public transport, masks in shops, fairly popular. None of these things are, you know, issues where there is a popular uprising against them. Maybe the Julie Hartley Brewers of of the world, but that's not a popular movement. The polling on this always shows that there's an overwhelming majority of people who are willing to wear masks on tubes. There are measures which Mm -hmm. would reduce Uh, circulation, which I don't necessarily think we should take, closing pubs, etc. But these are masks, certification. For me, they're socially basically cost-free. And the only reason we're not introducing them isn't because it would be politically difficult in terms of public opinion. It's that Boris Johnson cares what his really extremist, out-of-touch, unrepresentative backbenchers think. They have a sort of conception of of freedom that's completely out of line with what most people in the public believe. And that is what is guiding our pandemic policy. It's a real sort of tail wagging the dog situation. I think that's true to an extent, but I think it's the confusing element of it. It's the fact that people were told it's over, we've done it. And once you've done that, it becomes really hard just from a political comms perspective, regardless of, you know, 
what whether or not people are necessarily in favor just from a political and you know public health comms perspective it becomes it just becomes kind of it's it's yet another u-turn from that now i don't think that that's justifiable at all don't get me wrong mm. but i think that's probably this is where i'm just sort of like how could you not have foreseen that this would be an issue and you know you see it in the in public transport you know people are have abandoned masks they have you know stopped wearing their masks and that's because the government told them it was okay to do that no no i mean it's not a fundamental disagreement i suppose i'm just pointing out how i i do think that even given their terrible decisions in the past there's very little to stop them introducing these these moderate measures i also think it's often overstated i think when it comes to pubs and when it comes to sort of socializing, I think people have serious pandemic fatigue and we need to be careful about what what um, sort of constrictions on people's life we introduce. But when it comes to masks, I think it is just really simple, which is if you're told to wear them and everyone else is wearing them, you will. And if you're not told to wear them and not everyone is wearing them, you won't. Like, I, that's just human nature. Like, I think of myself as a fairly independent minded person but when they first made masks not mandatory in pubs i was always i would just do whatever the majority of the people in the room were doing right i was it was it was that simple if the barman wasn't wearing a mask i wouldn't put my mask on to go to the bar if they were i would put my mask on to go to the bar and i i just think that this idea that people have stopped wearing masks because they're sick of wearing masks is kind of a false assessment of, of what's going on. And it's literally just, if you tell people to wear masks and everyone is wearing masks, they'll do it. If you don't, they won't. And that's why I think it's so stupid that Boris Johnson keeps standing up and saying, this is a matter for personal choice. We want you to use your own judgment and wear masks. We're social beings. We do things that other people are doing, which is why you should take the simple measure of saying, everyone wear the masks. It's like a collective action problem, really simple to solve. And they're refusing to step up. When it comes to conservative backbenchers having a pernicious um, influence on government policy, the next story is probably a better example of that than anything. Our Tory government's approach to COVID has been consistently undermined by ignorance, denial and appeasement of the right-wing libertarians who occupy the party's backbenches. Each one of these deficiencies were on show in this ridiculous answer from Sajid Javid on Sky News. How many of you were wearing masks? You can take a look at the picture that we've got. The, the, the number 10 released yesterday, mm. that they chose this picture. There's basically well, 38 to 40 people in that room, poorly ventilated. Not one person is wearing a mask on the day that you advise us to wear masks in situations like that. And that is uh, perfectly consistent with what the Prime Minister said yesterday and what I said yesterday, because what we said was that people should uh, consider wearing masks in crowded places when they are with strangers, when they are with people that they are not normally spending so we'll time with. we expect the Conservative backbenches to be wearing masks at PMQs later No, they're not, they're not strangers. You know, this is they, the, the Conservative backbenches, whether they're in Parliament, in the chamber themselves, itself, or in the other meeting rooms well, and things. you not catch COVID so, from your friends? It's, it's not, it's, it, you have to take measures that are appropriate uh, for the, the prevalence of COVID at the time. That guy is the health secretary. He's the health secretary. He's the most important person in the country when it comes to public health. And he's going on national television and saying you don't have to worry about catching COVID if you're among friends. And now I can imagine you saying, it. oh, you've got a gathering, you've got a party. It's not really going to work if you're all wearing masks. He's talking about the House of Commons, right? That's 650 people. The House of Commons would function perfectly if everyone other than the speaker and the people who were speaking were wearing masks. There's no reason not to wear it other than ideology. Now, as I say, there, there are a number of ways in which I think that clip is characteristic of everything that's been wrong with the toy response to COVID over the past 18 months. One, it's completely stupid to the point of ridiculous. As I say, you can catch COVID from strangers. COVID doesn't care. If, if Tory MPs went to the same debating society, if they trashed the same restaurants at university and public school, it doesn't care. They can still pass COVID to each other. Secondly, what this does is show a government completely in denial. Javid there said, we have to take measures that are appropriate to the prevalence of COVID in society. That implies we currently have low rates. But let's see how we compare to our European neighbours. These are new confirmed COVID-19 cases per million people in Britain and in our European 
neighbours. We are running at about 500 daily cases per million people. France, the Netherlands, Germany, Italy and Spain are all under 150. When faced with these kind of comparisons, what you'll often hear is say, oh, but we've got higher vaccination rates, which means that a case is less serious than it is there. Actually, that used to be the case. Now, most of those countries have caught up or overtaken us when it comes to the number of people vaccinated. It's also worth noting all those countries have mask mandates. So this is another situation of complete denial and exceptionalism from the government, which is putting people at risk for no good reason. I mean, that's the important thing to remember here. People say, you, you've got, we've, we've got to learn to live with COVID, for example. Yes, I agree with that. But if we can limit transmission in a relatively socially cost-free way, just do it. They're refusing to do it because they're obsessed with seeing themselves as... What, I find it difficult to rationalize, I, I have to say. The final thing, this is why it represents everything that is wrong with our government's strategy when it comes to policy making, is that that was our health secretary. Now, he should be making policies that protect our health, communicating the latest up-to-date science on COVID-19. Yet instead, he's essentially lying to the public on an issue of public health, all to justify the pig-headedness of his extremist backbenchers. So he sees the backbenchers, they refuse to wear masks. Instead of him going on television and saying, how do I communicate the best up-to-date science? He's saying, how do I go on television and justify the idiotic behavior of the backbenchers in my party? Now, if you want an idea of how strongly these adult babies on the Tory backbenches feel about masks, just look at this moment from Tuesday's announcement about our so-called Plan B. We have prepared a Plan B of a contingency measures that we can call upon only if they are needed and supported by the data to prevent unsustainable pressure on the NHS. These measures would be communicating clearly and urgently to the public the need for caution, legally mandating face coverings in certain no. settings. Now, like Sajid Javid there has literally just said, if we were in a situation where the NHS is under severe strain, I mean, it is already under severe strain, but he's, I'm presuming he's imagining it's about to collapse. A Tory backbencher MP has heard that in that extreme scenario, people are going to be asked to wear masks. And he, you know, he's at work that now it's so pathetic, but it's also incredibly influential because it seems to be dictating government policy. How significant do you think these extremist backbenchers are? Or am I, in a way, letting Boris Johnson and Sajid Javid off the hook because they are also just as extremist as that person sort of screaming, now, in the background? Would it have been Boris Johnson sort of going, no, if it was Theresa May who was still Prime Minister announcing a sensible policy such as this? It's very, very hard to say because I think a lot of people that are have been close to Boris Johnson have often said that the only thing he cares about is you know, the the Murdoch papers and, and the Tory backbenchers. But it makes you think, what are you scared that the Tory backbenchers are going to do? Like, wh what kind of threat do these, you know, I mean, that kind of cr dinosaur style croak to the idea of wearing a mask doesn't suggest to me that this is some big, burly, threatening person that I should be really scared of. It sounds like someone who's just sort of a bit of a coward snowflake, really. So I don't really know what they're worried, you know, that if the Tory backbenchers are sort of, you know, coming for you, what exactly they're going to do. But I think that, you know, obviously that that interview where Sajid Javid said that thing about, uh, you know, not you can't catch it from people that, you know, is it's actually the precise and exact opposite. I feel like you're actually more likely to catch it from someone that, you know, because you're more likely to, you know, being close contact with them, you're more likely to be in ongoing contact with them, you're more likely to be, you know, hugging them and being sort of near them without a mask on. I mean, I don't, don't quote me on that. I don't know the exact statistics, but it strikes me as probably quite likely. I know that in the, the sort of the last massive uptick in, in infections over winter during that Christmas period, a big reason for that was secondary schools they were a, they were secondary school students were a big part of that spread because they would go in secondary school and then go home with their family like covid isn't something that you give to someone because you don't like them 
it's something that you give to someone because you know you're not following precautions like wearing a mask and i also to to finish this off and this is something that i don't think we're picking up on enough the fact that one of the plan b strategies um which you know is going to kick in if you know the, the nhs is on the brink of of collapse uh, and you know however many deaths per day is to use caution i mean this government has not learned a single thing what what does that mean throw that in the bin i'm fed up of it like that's just abs- what does it mean to exercise caution when you haven't given people concrete steps on how to be cautious it's just absolutely absurd and it just shows to me again and this is where i think a bit more of the blame should go on to that front the front bench and the decision makers is because i think it's not it's rooted partly in political expediency but i think it's rooted more in actually being quite ideologically consistent with the idea that you know mandating people to wear a mask is like some kind of violation of individual libertarianism which is of course absurd i think that's such a good point i hadn't picked up on that actually that plan b if the hospitals are about to collapse will urge the public to use caution <laughs> like why don't you urge us to use caution now you know <laughs> it's sort of, that doesn't that seems like that should that shouldn't even be plan a that should just be like a a given just I feel <laughs> until, yeah, until the pandemic is over, like the starting point should probably be like, use some caution, you know, yeah. very sad. It's absurd. And it is, it, it's deeply ideological and it has cost tens of thousands of lives. We, we would have had a much, much lower death toll if instead of following his backbenchers and following his own, I don't know what's like right wing libertarian instincts, I suppose, Boris Johnson had just literally followed science. We wouldn't have been, what the Julie Hartley Brewers of the world will say, is if we follow the science, we would have been endless lockdowns. Not at all. That's not really what the scientists were ever suggesting, what they were mainly suggesting, because they do actually seem to care about freedoms, despite this whole, like, oh, they're merchants of doom who just want to increase their control. That's the Dan Wooten line on GB News. They do actually tend to seem quite interested in, in balancing freedoms with safety, which means that they are highlighting things such as masks, such as certification, these things which won't significantly impact our lives, but which will keep the virus under control and ultimately avoid lockdowns. That's what Patrick Valance kept saying. If we use these simple options now, then we won't have lockdowns in future. So it's not Boris Johnson on the side of freedom versus the scientists on the side of totalitarianism. It's Boris Johnson on the side of, I suppose, this sort of anti-science irrationalism, which over and over again puts off the inevitable as a tool of party management. So he's like, oh, they won't be able to oppose mask mandates if the hospitals are about to collapse, so I'll wait until the hospitals are collapsing. It's the worst way to do public health imaginable. Let's go to our final story, which is on Nicki Minaj. Before we do that, if you want to support us directly, you can do so at navarromedia.com slash support. It is our regular donors that keep us going. If you are already a donor to Navarro Media, Thank you so much. We do really appreciate it. We'll close the show with one of the more surreal showdowns of the pandemic, this time pitching pop star Nicki Minaj against UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the BBC's political editor, Laura Koonsberg. The story begins with this pretty wild tweet from Nicki Minaj to her 22 million followers. She says... My cousin in Trinidad won't get the vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. His testicles became swollen. His friend was weeks away from getting married. Now the girl called off the wedding. So just pray on it and make sure you're comfortable with your decision, not bullied. It goes without saying that the vaccine doesn't make testicles bigger or cause impotence. That was confirmed by the US Center for Disease control. They felt the need to clarify that after that tweet because Nicki Minaj has so many followers. It seems quite easy to work out what has happened in this situation. Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend caught an STD and then his fiance broke up with him due to infidelity. I I assume that's what's happened and it's led to this rather embarrassing situation which hopefully won't persuade anyone not to actually take the vaccine. Uh, The next part of the story is that this came up in a Downing Street press conference, a question was asked to Chris Whitty, um, in fact, and, and Boris Johnson also commented. Let's take a look. Professor Whitty, one of the world's biggest female celebrities, Nicki Minaj, has today publicly linked the coronavirus vaccines to impotence. 
Now, she's got 8 million followers on Twitter. Many of them are young people. The young people you're suggesting should get vaccinated. What would you say to them and how concerned are you by public comments like that from public figures? So there are a number of myths that fly around with varying, some of which are just clearly ridiculous and some of which are clearly designed just to scare. That happens to be one of them. Uh, that is untrue. Uh, I, my own strong suggestion, if I may, to uh, uh, media present and not present is repeating them in public actually just gives them credence, which they don't need. Uh, they're untrue, full stop. Uh, if you think about uh, where we are actually overall, and this is the, this is a slightly longer answer to your question because I think it's a very important one, the great majority of people are getting vaccinated. So the great majority of people are ignoring these myths. And if you talk about people in their 50s and 60s and 70s, you're talking about uh, over 90% of people getting vaccinated. Uh, and very few people actually are actively, in the same sense, in the anti-vax group. There are a group of people who've got strange beliefs and fine, and they make their own choices. And in a sense, also fine. People are, adults are allowed to make their own choices. However, strange, that is a basic principle of uh, medical ethics, actually. But there are also people who go around trying to discourage other people from taking uh, a vaccine, which could be life-saving or prevent them from having life-changing uh, uh, injuries to themselves. And many of those people, I regret to say, I think know that they are peddling untruths, but they still do it. In my view, they should be ashamed. And I'll leave it at that. And I, look, I'm, uh, just on that, Steve, I, I'm not familiar with the works of, uh, or not as familiar with the works of, of Nikki Minaj as I probably should be, but I am familiar with, with uh, Nikki Kanani, a superstar GP of Bexley, who's appeared many times on uh, before you, uh, who, who will tell you that vaccines are wonderful and everybody sh uh, should get them. Uh, so I prefer to listen to, to Nikki Kanani. Chris Whitty's answer there, I think quite reasonable, sort of saying that we, we focus a lot on people who are peddling misinformation or people who are, you know, genuine vaccine skeptics and less on people who are just a bit vaccine hesitant. They're, they're probably the more important group to focus on. Back to the, the flame war, Nikki Minaj was um, alerted to the fact that she had been brought up in this press conference and tweeted uh, a, a video of Boris Johnson and Chris Whitty saying, I love him, even though I guess this was a diss, the accent, oh, yes, boo, with a lot of emojis. And then she followed that tweet up with this quite exceptional voice note. Yes, hello, Prime Minister Boris, it's Nicki Minaj. Um, I was just uh, calling to tell you that I thought you were so amazing on the news this morning. And I'm actually British. Um, I was born there. I, I went to university there. I went to Oxford. Um, I went to school with Margaret Thatcher. And she told me so many nice things about you. I'd love to send you my portfolio of my work since you don't know much about me, I'm a big, big star in, in, in the United States. That was very, you know, she's not, her public, don't take her public health advice, but she got a very good Twitter game. I went to school with Margaret <laughs> Thatcher and I'm very famous in the States. Like, I kind of, I feel like she made up almost, I suppose, no, the vaccine misinformation is more consequential. You can't just make up for that with a funny voice note, but she got, she got part of the way there, I think. Nicki Minaj has put her fans through an awful lot. I feel like she hasn't really been okay since Cardi B came on the scene. And since then, she's just been moving like very, very mad and exhausting all of her fans who need to defend her. Like, I think that like the barbs are tired and you need to give them a break, Nicki. But I do like she did say elsewhere in her Twitter that she is probably going to get the vaccine before she goes on tour. But I'm also just disappointed with her because I'm like, if you had told me like a week ago that there would be a fight between where like Laura Koonsberg, Piers Morgan and Boris Johnson were on one side and Nicki Minaj was on the other side, you couldn't have paid me enough money to convince me that I wouldn't be on Nicki Minaj's side. And yet 2021 continues to, to uppercut me in terms of like just completely spinning me. But it was hysterical, but also get the vaccine <laughs> yeah get the vaccine yeah she 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 has been over the past um 24 hours very keen to stress she isn't actually an anti-vaxxer she's saying i'm i'm open to this i just want people to do their research i suppose the problem with that line is i mean the research she's 
doing and encouraging people to do isn't isn't the kind of research you should really be taking on board. If your cousin's friend got swollen testicles and then their wife didn't marry them, you know that's that's not a that's not scientific research. So I, I do think that while you know ev everyone should do their own research, that's fine, that's good. But we should also recognise that. Well, I, I personally do this. I recognise that my knowledge of vaccine safety and vaccine efficacy is is very much limited. And so, if there's an overwhelming scientific consensus that these are safe vaccines and they're very effective vaccines, then no matter what you tell me, your cousin's friend had happen, I'm not going to actually consider listening to you as me doing research. I'm going to just dismiss that out of hand, which probably Nicki Minaj should have done as well, right? Yeah, I think with the the people who do their own research, I, it's like there are people whose job it is to actually do this research. And I don't think that you have a full, you know, lab testing lab, you know, in your garage where you're going to like personally test these vaccines out. But also it's just like, oh, is this what men are doing to like get out of cheating accusations now? Like when they are getting STDs from cheating on their girlfriends, they're just going to be like, oh, no, it's a side effect of the vaccine. That's why, you know, I have like a done all kinds of madness it's just it's innovative i have to rate it but also don't bring your cousin's friend into it like that it's disrespectful the other people <laughs> were suggesting is that maybe the cousin's friend's fiance was a bit harsh to call off a wedding because he was impotent for two weeks but i think probably more likely she actually knew that it was she, i mean maybe she called off the wedding because the excuse was so ridiculous um let's go to laura koonsberg she was caught in the crossfire she had quoted minaj's response to boris johnson saying 2021 everyone um you know and Nicki minaj responds yes 2021 when jackasses hang on to my every tweet but can't decipher sarcasm and humor and can't read go away dumbo <laughs> are you still siding with with Koonsberg, Johnson, and Witty after that drive-by. So tough, man. Why do you have to do this to me, Nikki? Let me support you in this. If it was anything else, I'd have been like, great, let's go. But I have no choice. I guess it's my duty as, you know, having a teeny tiny platform. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've, you've, yeah, I, I, I should take my responsibility. I was, I was starting to kind of be team Nikki, but you're right. We should take our, yeah. we should take our platforms more seriously, even if one side is more funny and, and talented and likable. If they're the ones promoting vaccine misinformation, we should side with the, with the people who, who aren't um, doing that. Dahlia, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening. It's been lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.